You are listening to a message recorded at Living Hope Church in Southwick, Massachusetts. We hope you find encouragement through God's Word today. So we're in the book of Philippians, and if you're just joining us in this, don't worry. We, you know, we try not to confuse you too much by saying you have to refer to the previous week's messages in order to stay with us. So if you'll turn your Bibles to Philippians 3, we, we've been going through the book of Philippians. We finished up the book of Acts earlier in the year and we decided to focus on Paul's letters that he wrote during his two years under house arrest, under Roman imprisonment. And so we've been in the book of Philippians more recently. And over the last couple of weeks, we've talked about what that means and, and what the focus of Philippians is. In the first week, we talked about uh, thinking about these things. How many know that you can think about a lot of different things? Some are not healthy. Some are unproductive. Um, but we're to focus on things of heaven, things above. That's what Paul encourages us to do. And the first week in chapter one, we talked about thinking about the gospel, that Paul's focus is that, you know, you came to know me through the gospel. You came to know Christ through the gospel. And so everything that we should do should be for the gospel. And then he talked about thinking about life and death and how right now everyone's fixated with life and death and worried about death. And that we talked about how when you're focused on worrying about dying, then you really can't be getting to living because you're too worried about not being able to, to live. And so you kind of limit yourself about what you can and can't do. And then last week we talked about how Paul talked about living for others and to consider one another better than yourself and to follow the servanthood example of Jesus. And that's what we should be doing as we uh, are Christians, that we shouldn't live to be served but live to serve and honor God. That when we serve others, we're also serving God as well because we are honoring each other. We're keeping the unity of the bond of peace and we're honoring God as well as we serve him and serve his purposes. This week, as we're in chapter three, Paul's gonna tell us about thinking about heaven. Now, most of us don't think about heaven unless we're at a funeral, am I right? Heaven's not something that really crosses our mind on a daily basis. Uh, sometimes we think about heaven when we're at a funeral or memorial service. We don't often think about uh, heaven very often. And when we do think about heaven, um, we, we kind of think of it in different ways. We don't really know what heaven will be like. We get some glimpses of what heaven's going to be like from the book of Revelation and from the Bible. We know that heaven uh, will be... Uh, you know, we, we know about the throne room in heaven. We know about the angels gathered around God's throne. We know about the saints dressed in white. We know that it's a place that there'll be no more sorrow, no more sadness, no more sickness, no more death, and that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We know from the, the uh, New Jerusalem that there'll be streets of gold, but we don't really know a whole lot about it other than the fact that we really want to go there, right? I don't know about you. I want to go there. I, I want to, because I want to be where Jesus is, I'm not concerned about the decor. I'm concerned about the company. Am I right? Like, it's, I, it's like, you know, people are like, well, will we have a mansion in heaven? I'm not concerned about whether I have a mansion in heaven. I'm just glad that I made the trip and I'm with the Lord and I'm with those who have gone on before me. They've been faithful. That, if that's all I have, that's fine. I know it's going to be more than that, but how much more? I don't know. And most of us don't know. But our thoughts should be on heaven, not just at the time when we lose somebody, but it should be on heaven at all times, thinking about heaven while we are on earth. Now, what do I mean by that, thinking about heaven while we're on earth? 
What I mean is that we are having our focus on God's kingdom instead of building our own. Having our focus on building God's kingdom instead of building our own. Now, we sometimes say, well, does that mean I shouldn't do anything else but God's purposes? No, but seeing what you do through the lens of doing things for God. So if God blesses you financially, using it to further God's kingdom. If God has gifted you with certain giftings and abilities that you're able to administrate and organize, then do that for your business, but also do that for God, too. If God's gifted you with the ability to speak and to motivate, then do that for your business, but also do it for God. Evangelize, share Christ's love with the world. If you are articulate and you can speak well, that's a gift that not everyone has So use it for God's glory. Thinking about heaven doesn't mean that all we do is we think about heaven and that we're so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. What it means is that we have heaven's purposes in mind when we go about this world. And he's talking about this in Philippians 3. Let's look at the first uh, six verses together, if you will, and you'll follow along with me. We're looking at Philippians 3, 1 through 6. Paul writes, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so, circumcised on the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, and concerning righteousness, which is the law, blameless. Now, I want to pause for those first couple of verses in case you might think that Paul just really doesn't like dogs. Because you might look at that and he says, beware the dogs, beware the mutilation. He's not talking about like dogs, even though among the Jewish people, dogs were an unclean animal, which I'm glad I'm a Christian because I love my dog. And I have a Brittany Spaniel at home that's seven years old, and I love my dog to pieces. But Paul's not warning against dogs in the sense of like an animal, but against false teachers who are coming in and trying to place on the Philippians who happen to be Gentiles the rules and regulations of Old Covenant law, the right of circumcision, not just for children, but for adults as well, and imposing upon dietary regulations and certain ob- observing of certain feasts and certain holy days, and, uh, you know, the right of circumcision. He says, beware of these kinds of people, these dogs who have come into your fellowship, who are trying to impose these things upon you in their zeal for self-righteousness, which is based on off of what they've done, thinking uh, according to the old covenant law that if you followed the law perfectly, then you had reason to boast because you were accepted in the sight of God. And so Paul was talking about this, you know, addressing this issue of pressure from these uh, Judaizers to uh, embrace the Jewish tradition And he said, if it was just about embracing the Jewish tradition and following the law perfectly, then Paul had every right and reason to boast about that, if it were about that. If zeal was sufficient for God's blessing, then Paul had it in abundance. If sincere fidelity religion was enough to get into heaven, surely Paul could have banked on this 
And he contrasts their requirements with his own accomplishments, arguing that if that was all that was needed, he would have surpassed all of their self-righteousness and all of their requirements. And he lists off all his accomplishments. He lists off his heritage and his lineage and his academic and spiritual pedigree. You know what it's like when you go to apply for a job? You try to put your best foot forward, and you try and refer to everything that you've done that's positive and all the things that you've accomplished so that when someone looks at it, they'll be duly impressed, and they'll say, surely this is the person that I want. Now, these Judaizers were saying, well, if you do all these things, you will have accomplishments. God will be impressed, and he'll say, you're the one that I want. You're my children, and so I'll accept you as such. Paul rolls out his resume. Not for him to boast in himself, but just to kind of put things into contrast about what he had accomplished. And if he could have boasted about it, if this was enough to get into heaven, Paul says, I've got this covered in spades. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He met all the Jewish requirements and Jewish customs from birth. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews who spoke not only Greek as most modern Jews did, but he also knew Hebrew, which in some cases was a forgotten language at that point as most of the culture became more influenced by the Greek. He was a Pharisee trained by Gamaliel, one of the best teachers of the law at that time. If you could be taught by anybody to be a Pharisee taught by the school of Gamaliel, you were the Pharisee of Pharisees. You were on the high tier of their organization. As for zeal, no one had it as much as Paul did. And he was so zealous for his religion that he hated the Christians and wanted to destroy them. Paul even talks about this in his persecution of Christians in Acts 26. If we look at Acts 26, verses 9 through 11, you don't have to turn there. We'll just put it on the screen for you. But Acts 26, 9 through 11, Paul, in his own testimony, after he's saved, talks about his great disdain and hatred for Christians. That he wasn't just a person that greatly disliked Christians but that he was so zealous in his hatred for them, he caused them to do terrible things as well, to humiliate them, to break them, and in some cases have them even put to death. Paul says this in Acts 26, 9 through 11. He said, Indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. I did this in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogue. And look at this, he says, I compelled them even to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul didn't just dislike Christians, he had it out for them. Why? Because his religion, his devotion to the old covenant said to him, I need to destroy these heretics and go the extra mile to destroy them. He arrested them, brought them to prison, consented to their deaths. He said they they even chased them to foreign cities. You want to talk about obsessed? Paul was obsessed with these Christians. It wasn't enough to expel them from Jerusalem. I'm going to chase them into Damascus, and wherever they go, I'm going to be with them. It was kind of like a scene out of The Fugitive where you have that U.S. marshal that just pursues that fugitive and will not let them be no matter where they went He was in pursuit of them. Paul even says that he was blameless in keeping the law, keeping the 400 plus commands and rules that the Pharisees had added in addition to the Mosaic law. 
It says that he kept all of them and was blameless. It says that he once took confidence in these accomplishments, believing himself to be a good and righteous person. But in the eyes of the Lord, I want you to hear this, Paul was lost. He was a soul in need of salvation. Look at verses 7 through 11 of Philippians 3. Let's look there together. Verses 7 through 11 of chapter 3. Immediately after Paul lists all of his accomplishments and all the things he could have taken pride in in his own self-righteousness, he goes on to say this, but what things were of gain to me, these I've counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ and the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So what's Paul talking about here? Paul understood that he was lost. Until one day on the road to Damascus, you can read this in Acts chapter 9, he comes face to face with the risen Savior. Jesus confronts him about his persecution, even going to the the point of saying, Paul, it's not the Christians you're persecuting, you are persecuting me. You are doing harm to me. And he meets Christ, he has a, a miraculous conversion experience, and now he recognizes that uh, he is that everything that he had was useless garbage compared to the knowledge of knowing Christ. He gained the knowledge of Jesus, but he lost all that he had. Remember that resume that he had? Listen, I, I did all these things. And it's like coming to the realization that everything that you've worked for, all that you've believed, your, your religion, your way of life was wrong. And when you realize something like that is wrong and it, it means nothing, it is like that. It's like garbage. It's like something that's thrown aside. You mean I wasted my time on things that did not matter. He gained the knowledge of Jesus, but he lost everything that he had worked for up until that point. Any confidence that he had in his own self-righteousness was completely destroyed when he came face to face with Jesus. He recognized that everything that he had done meant nothing compared to knowing the risen Christ. Instead, now focusing on his self-righteousness and his accomplishments, he focuses on knowing Christ more and the power of the resurrection. The resurrection is the hope that he had in the face of death. Paul even wrote about the importance of the resurrection in an earlier letter to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 18 talks about this. Why is the resurrection important? Why is it necessary for us? Why does Paul want to know this so much? Look at what he has to say as he wrote the Corinthian church just a few years before. And he says this, Now if Christ is preached, uh, and if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. 
For we are even, if, if so, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then even Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope of this life only, then we of all people are to be most pitied. So what is he saying? If there's no resurrection, then the preaching in our faith is in vain. And if there is no resurrection, then Christ hasn't risen from the dead. And if Christ hasn't risen from the dead, then those who put their faith in Christ to be risen, they too are dead also. And our faith is empty and meaningless and useless. And all the people that you believe that went on before you that died in Christ, they are dead and gone. And if our faith is based on this and there is no resurrection, then we're to be pitied. It's a sad thing indeed. And they said, if we have done this, then we've been lying to you the whole time. Paul makes the point that the resurrection is incredibly important. So much of what we believe hangs on the resurrection. It's the promise of eternal life to the believer. And Paul says he wants to know the resurrection. That he might experience the resurrection from the dead. That's one part, but also the power of the resurrection. Remember, when Jesus left this earth, when he ascended to heaven, he gave his disciples power and authority in his name to be able to perform miracles and to do incredible things for God's kingdom. Paul uses the word for the resurrection. It's a Greek word. It's called exanastasin, which means to receive a partial resurrection from among the dead. And the picture here, I want you to picture this for a minute, that Paul is painting is that he was like one who was raised from the dead out of, a, out of a pile of bodies that was dead. So imagine, if you will, a pile of dead bodies and Paul being the only one that's lifted out of that and brought back to life and comes down off that pile. Paul is talking about he was raised out of a dead way of thinking and out of a fruitless pursuit of self-righteousness. When Jesus calls us from death to life, when he calls us as sinners to salvation, he is calling us from a group of people that are the walking dead, if you will. A group of people that are dead in sin, dead in religion, dead in self-righteousness, and we are from among the dead. Jesus calls our name And we are chosen by him and we receive salvation and we are no longer dead, but we are alive in Christ. And the resurrection is only possible through righteousness, not our own, but in Christ's righteousness that was given to us. Man's righteousness is not enough to gain heaven. In order to get to heaven according to the old covenant, you had to be absolutely perfect. Now, I don't know how many perfect people we have here today. Y'all look pretty good, I gotta say. But I don't know if you are absolutely perfect. Only your spouse could tell me for sure if you are perfect or not. Listen, if you want an honest opinion about how you really are, you get as perfect as you think you are, ask your spouse. Ask your children. They'll kind of point out some things that may need a little tweaking there. So we are not fully perfect, but that's what God required according to the old covenant. 
And so man couldn't reach it. And unfortunately, if you were guilty of one sin, you were guilty of the entire law. And so what had to happen is that Jesus had to come and he had to die for us. And there was only one sinless man, only one perfect man, that was Jesus. And that he gave his life for ours. He died as the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And unlike the Old Testament means of sacrifice where they would offer up an animal sacrifice for the sins of mankind, here we have Jesus who is offering up himself, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, the God-man, the man-made flesh, God dwelling amongst us, Emmanuel, God with us. And because God is eternal. The blood of Christ is eternal. So when it's shed once, it's not just shed for that moment or that period of time. It is shed for all time. And that sacrifice is good forever. For the sins that you did, the sins that you have done, and any sin that you're going to do in the future, that blood is sufficient to cover it. If you ask for forgiveness. But then there's the resurrection as well because the resurrection is important because the resurrection proves that what Jesus said about himself was true. Then he says, I am the son of God and in three days, just like Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, so the son of man will be in the heart of the earth again and be resurrected. When he said that and when it came to pass, it proved that he was who he said he was. Without the resurrection, Jesus is just a good moral teacher. But with the resurrection, we know that he's the son of God, sent from God above, and that we have confidence over death because he overcame death. So if we're worried, we're saying, well, uh, you know, he said that we would, you know, be resurrected from the dead. He said that we'd have eternal life, but he himself didn't resurrect. How embarrassing, right? But because he said it, and because he was the firstborn among the dead, the scriptures say, that he rose and he showed us that it is possible that through faith in Christ and through the redemption of our sins, through Jesus, we are able to overcome even death itself. Let's look back at Philippians 3 again. Let's look at verses 12 through 16 as we continue on. Because of the resurrection, we have confidence in the promise of Christ that what he said about what we needed for eternal life is possible and available to us if we have faith in Jesus. Paul goes on to say in verse 12, he says, not that I've already attained this or that I'm already perfected, but I press on that I might lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press towards the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we've already attained, let us walk by the same rule and be of the same mind. Look at verse 12. He said, not that I've already attained it. Now, Paul had already been saved for 30 years by the time he wrote the book of Philippians. He had been through many battles contending for the faith. He had done much for God's kingdom. He had suffered a great deal for the cause of Christ. Yet he reiterates that one's salvation is not contingent upon any sense of their own accomplishments, but upon their connection with Christ. So let's look at it this way. Okay, Paul said, before I became a Christian, I had this wonderful pedigree. I had this amazing resume 
that I can list off to you, well-educated, of the higher class of society, of noble birth, well-known, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And he said that was all useless rubbish and meaningless compared to knowing Christ because none of that meant anything. And now that I'm a Christian, it's different. But he also goes on to say, talking about the, the accomplishments that he has. He's already been, okay, he's been in prison. He's been beaten. He's been, uh, you know, he's performed miracles. He's done mighty things for God. He's written three quarters of the New Testament at that time. He's planted churches, and he says, I'm not yet there yet. If that's what, it's like, if you're not there yet, when do you get there? Do you know what I mean? Like, most of us say, you know, we kind of like pat ourselves on the back for things that we've done. We're like, hey, we, we're doing pretty good. I've been Christian 20 years, 30 years, 50 years you know, I'm involved in the church. You know, I'm involved in my deacon board. Maybe I volunteer in the community. And we go, we look pretty good. But Paul says, I've not apprehended it yet. Not that I've arrived yet, but I still keep pressing on towards the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What does that mean and what does that speak to us today? That we should never settle. Never get to a place in your Christian life where you fold your arms and you say, I've arrived. Never get to a place in your Christian walk where you've heard sermons before or you've heard a Sunday school teaching or you've sat in a midweek study and go, ah, I've heard this before. I don't need to listen. How are we supposed to be hearers and doers of the word if we one day shut our ears off and say, I don't need to hear this anymore? That's how we become blind and dumb and dull like the book of Isaiah says. If we think we've arrived. Like I said, if you think that you've arrived, ask somebody if you've arrived. <laughs> ask a brother and sister in Christ. Or even more so, ask the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit will be like, that area needs some work. In our conversations with God, we often ask God, why is it this way? And then God will always respond with a question. Why do you do it this way? Or why have you chosen to do this? Which is very much like Jesus in the, the New Testament, if you read the Gospels. When any time people asked him questions, Jesus always asked a question back. And when they knew the answer, which was sometimes a very convicting kind of uh, answer, then they got the answer that they were looking for. And sometimes God does that with us, is that when we're asking him about stuff, he actually puts his finger on the things that we really need to change in order to achieve that which we are looking for that's so elusive from us. It's out of our grasp because we keep looking in the wrong places for those things. That's for somebody today. You can just put that and just kind of lock it away somewhere. Paul is just saying, he's like, I've never, I haven't attained it yet. And I'm still striving for it. Not to strive for his salvation, but to continue to work and walk in God's ways. There's still mountains to climb. There's still a race to be run. There's still a work to be done for God's kingdom. And Paul didn't settle into a complacent, careless, lazy Christianity, but rather continued to pursue Christ. At no point did he consider himself having arrived. Instead, he was constantly moving forward with his eyes on heaven. This is a picture of one who is running the race and reaching out for a prize. And the race is life. And the prize and goal is eternity. He wanted to run until he died for the faith and was with the Lord or until the Lord returned, whichever came first. 
Now, the great thing about a marathon is that you can stop and rest for a minute. And keep running again. If you ever watch a marathon run, you see a marathon. At the beginning of the, the marathon, there are literally like thousands of people at the starting line. Right? Thousands of people. Shoulder to shoulder, right up against each other, ready to run. And when that gun, starting gun goes off, they all start running. And sometimes in the running, it's crowded. And sometimes in the running, you might have to push people aside. And sometimes there's a little bit of resistance there to be able to get through the race. But in a marathon, even though there's a bunch of people that start the race, not everybody finishes it. And usually in the people that are running the final leg of the race, if you ever watch a marathon, like a really long one, whether it's in New York or the Manhattan Marathon or you have the, the Boston Marathon, these people are coming across, they're kind of coming across the, the finish line. And it's not like I'm running like a sprint unless they've got somebody with them. They're usually just kind of just it's slowly kind of getting, like, the body's sore and tired and weary and just kind of just make your way across. So you're like, I made it. You know, and that's how it is sometimes. You might be walking through your life right now and you're just following Jesus for a certain number of years. I'm just, I can just get another, another Sunday. I'll just be okay. Just get another weekend. This 60-hour week coming up. And you feel like that sometimes. But, like, you know what? It doesn't matter how you cross the finish line. It just matters that you did. Do you get it? So when you're walking with Jesus, when you're following him, it's okay to rest. It's okay to take a break, but make sure you keep moving forward. The race, it gets over when you decide that I'm not going to run this race anymore. And our faith is that race that we need to run and keep going and keep moving forward. Heaven is Paul's focus. It's not just about getting to heaven, but fulfilling heaven's purposes here on earth. By bringing God's gospel and glory to the world that's in darkness, he has his focus on the upward call of God, the call that has got us going heavenward. So our focus should be on heaven. In verse 15 and 16, he talks about maturity of mind and maturity of walk so that we should have our mind focused on what is truly important, not on self-accomplishments, not on self-righteousness, but we should focus our minds on maturity. Remember, this, the, the title of this series is Think on These Things. And Paul constantly goes back to where our minds are tending to go about the way that we think things are and the way things need to be. So he says, let your mind focus on these things. And then be mature in our walk, that we should be with Christ, walking in Christ to grow and develop in him. Now Paul finishes up this last part of the letter of this section of the letter in 17 through 21 of Philippians 3. Let's look there together. Are you still with me? Amen. Or are you kind of looking at this like it's a marathon? I wish you would wrap this up. So. <laughs> When's it going to get done? It just seems like it's so long. Don't worry, it's coming. It's coming. Verses 17 through 21. It says, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even with tears, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it might be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he 
is able to subdue all things to himself. Now, the last part of that verse there in verse 21, again, he refers to the resurrection. He talks about it being a bodily resurrection in addition to spirit so that these weak, tired, sore bodies will one day be redeemed and resurrected to a new and glorious body just like Christ was. But I want you to take note of verses 20 and 21. He says that we are citizens of heaven. Citizens with and in heaven. Now, what does it mean to be a citizen? It means that you are a legal resident of that country and that you have uh, the rights and privileges of that country and that you have indistinguishable characteristics that you come from that country. So to be a citizen means that it's recognized that you are from a particular country, you have the rights and privileges of that country, and there are certain things that are, uh, are noteworthy about you that identify you as being from that country. So for example, speech. Sometimes you can tell where a person is from by their speech. Okay, Certain dialects, certain languages... Even though a person might speak Chinese, there are various dialects of Chinese. There's Taiwanese, there's Mandarin, there's different dialects, even though the person is speaking Chinese. And based on what the person is saying and how they're saying it, you can tell what region they're from. Just like in Massachusetts, you can tell that there are certain people from certain parts of Massachusetts based on the accent they have. You're like, oh, you're from, I, okay, born and raised in Massachusetts, all right? Been here my whole life except for maybe three years when I was down at Bible College in Rhode Island. Mostly New England most of my life. People are like, well, you don't have a Boston accent. It's because I didn't live in Boston. My mom's here today. I love my mom. She doesn't have an accent either, okay? We don't have that Massachusetts accent. But there are some people that do that you'll know and you'll talk about, and it's really thick and the R's are missing, and it's an A-H, you know. And so you say, oh, okay, I know that person's from this area by the way they speak. Conversely, I want you to think about it this way. If we are citizens of heaven, should not our language be that of a heavenly language? Should we not also speak as people who have the very words of God upon their lips? People who preach and speak the gospel, people who speak uplifting things, people that speak the word of God and speak truth, or are we people who are inclined to use colorful language? Are we people who are inclined to gossip? Are we people that sometimes say disparaging things about people behind their back? Now, I know that doesn't happen in church. It only happens in other churches, okay? I know. It doesn't happen in this church. But the tendency of people is that when our own lives are too boring, we talk about other people. And sometimes we have our opinions about what people should or should not be doing. And sometimes we even say things that are not kind or becoming of people. And when that's the case, we are no longer speaking the language of the country that we're from, but we're speaking like the rest of the world is. Okay? So, now if you're born of a particular country, you dress the way you dress and your actions reflect where you're from. Sometimes people can tell where you are from because of the way you're dressed and your mannerisms and certain things are uh, consistent and marking of people from different parts of the world. So here's a question for us. As Christians, do we live, act, and dress as those who have heaven on their minds? Do we conduct ourselves in a way that is godly? Can people tell that you're a Christian by your actions? Do we act with love 
Do we act with integrity? Do we act with godly character? Is there anything about us that sets us apart from the rest of the world, or are we the same as everyone else? To the point that if someone were to find out you were a Christian, do they say, I know, or were they surprised? The surprise thing's not good, I'll tell you that right now. If you say, oh, I'm a Christian, they're like, really? Like, that's not the reaction you want. You don't want them to be like, I never knew. Like, something about your speech, something about your actions should indicate to them that you are indeed a Christian and not just a good person, not just a good neighbor, but someone who loves and follows God. Because our good works without the gospel is just kindness. And people will think, well, they're just a Buddhist or they're just a good, you know, they believe in karma and they're paying it forward. If you pair it up with an encouragement from the word of God, you are giving power and weight to the things that you do for others. Do we reflect love and character? Another thing about a citizen is a citizen has all the rights and privileges of that country. As a Christian, we are citizens of heaven. Given all the rights and benefits and authority by Jesus himself. This is a section that we sometimes miss out on when we, do, when we fail to understand that we are citizens of heaven. We are not citizens of this world. Now keep in mind, I'm a citizen of the United States, okay? I'm not saying I'm forfeiting my citizenship or anything like that. But this is not my home. Westfield, Massachusetts is not my home. Southwick, Massachusetts is not my home. United States of America is not my home. My home is heaven. And my job is to try and bring as many people with me home as possible. When you start shifting the way you think about things, instead of thinking about home as what you have and the knickknacks on your shelf and the money in your bank and the thing comforts that you enjoy, and usually it's those comforts that keep us from reaching out to other people. When you think of this is not my home, but home is heaven, and I want to bring as many people with me because I can't bring stuff with me. I want to bring people. And when you think of it that way, you become more motivated. It shifts something into gear. It has you say, you know, I need to do something. I need to tell somebody. I need to be an example. I need to encourage people. I need to pray for people. Understanding that as citizens of heaven, we don't go into this situation powerless or without resource or aid or help, but that God has given to us as citizens of heaven, bought with the blood of Christ, that we belong to him, that he has given us power and authority in prayer, power and authority in his word. Power and authority to perform miracles. Power and authority to set people free. God has given to us all the rights and privileges and promises that go along with his word. I'm not talking a prosperity gospel today. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a gospel of power that makes a difference in someone's life. That you can say that your life has transformed someone else's life through it. Are we living as citizens of heaven? in the world that we're living in now, instead of going, I can't wait to get to heaven so I can get out of here. I can't wait to get out of here instead of going, God, as Paul said, that while I'm here, I'm going to continue to do your work. I'm still striving for it. I'm still reaching for it. I'm still running for it until the day you call me heavenward. But for the time being, I'm here now to do your purposes and to do your will. And if you believe that, even in the slightest bit of way, say amen. All right. Are we exercising those rights? Be someone who is on assignment for God wherever you go. You know, if you ever worked in 
uh, emergency services. I'm a chaplain for the Southwick Fire Department, and I'm not working 24-7, but I, I realize there are times I can be called in a moment's notice, and sometimes I can make it, sometimes I can't. But you're always on call. That there's always an opportunity where you're going to be called upon to do something. Do you recognize that your life, that when it comes to being a Christian, you don't punch out from being a Christian? going to work today, so I'm going to punch out and not be a Christian right now. Or someone crosses you or makes you mad and you don't punch the card and say, okay, for the time being, I'm not going to be a Christian here. Or somebody says something offensive on social media and for many of you, I'm going to punch out and say, okay, now I'm going to let you know, give you a piece of my mind, which is never a good idea, especially in a day and age where they can screenshot anything. For you to give a piece of your mind on social media is not always the best thing. Sometimes it's just a better look at it, let it scroll on by. And so someone can't go and say, see what you said back in 2017 about this. And you're like, oh, I'm kind of embarrassed for myself. I'm kind of embarrassed for the gospel too. But if we just simply say, you know what, I want to be a representative for Christ in whatever I say and whatever I do. Are we driven by the call of heaven? So we need, in order to do this, we need to be on assignment wherever God wants us to go, that we're always on duty. Verse 18, before Paul talks about citizenship, he also talks about, uh, if you could throw that back up on the screen there, verse 18, Paul also talks about those who are deceivers. Now remember, Paul's context here is he's talking about those who are trying to get them to uh, invest in self-righteousness rather than the righteousness that comes from Christ by observing certain laws and certain regulations. And he says, you know, watch out for those who are distractors and those who are deceivers. You know, if you want to get off course from your assignment with God, pay attention to the distractions and the deceivers. The distractions are like, hey, you know, do this over here. Pay attention to that over there. And you kind of get your focus off of where God wants it to be. And watch out for the deceivers too because deceivers come into the church as well. And Paul talks about the marks of deceivers, false teachers, and it's very simple. He kind of recognizes them with three different things. One, their God is their belly. In other words, they're motivated by the desires of this world. Whatever their appetites want, that's what they pursue. That's the first mark of a false teacher and a deceiver. They're motivated by their stomach and by their baser instincts. Secondly, their glory is their shame. They delight in shameful things, not even realizing their error. The things that they should be ashamed of, they're actually rejoicing in. And don't we see that in the world that we live in today where someone should be ashamed of something but instead they're gladly parading around for others to see as though there's nothing wrong with it. Thirdly, they set their minds on earthly things. They're only focused on things of this world and their own accomplishments which are like filthy rags, Paul says. So what do we need to do in these cases? Don't be distracted and don't focus on the distractors and the the uh, deceivers, instead focus on heaven. Paul says, not that I've already apprehended it, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Now, some of us look at verse 13, so, yeah, forgetting what is behind, we think just the mistakes. But remember the context of what Paul is saying here is that everything that I've done up to this point is unimportant. The only thing that's important is the next thing God wants me to do. 
So all the self-righteousness by the law, unimportant. All the things that he accomplished up until that point, he's an apostle, you know, he's planted churches, he's done miraculous things for the gospel. All those things that he's done are amazing things. He says, I'm forgetting those things that are behind. I'm pressing on to the next thing. I'm pressing on towards my goal. Whatever Christ wants me to do, whatever God wants me to do, that's where I want to do what I want to do, and that's where I want to be. My question to you today, is that where you want to be? Do you want to be focused on the things that God's focused on? Do you want to be focused on the things that are important to the Lord? What do we need to do? We need to focus not on our own righteousness, but rather seek a relationship with God. Paul says, I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Do you want to know Jesus more deeply and intimately than you did when you were first saved. That's the desire. And that Paul could say that when he's 50 plus years old after 30 years of, you know, preaching the gospel and he can say this later on in his life and say, you know, I'm still strongly desiring to know Jesus more closely than I've known him before. To do this, we can't rest in our own accomplishments and our own self-righteousness we must seek a deeper relationship with Christ. And to do this, we've got to keep our eyes on the prize. Keep our eyes on the future. And that you're never fully retired from loving and serving God. That you've never arrived. That you're still learning. You're still growing. You're still serving and contributing. And if you ever thought that you've arrived, you know what you should be doing? if you thought you've arrived, not looking for the next thing to feed you, but to feed someone else. Well, this is not feeding me anymore. When did you offer to start feeding in the kitchen? Have you done that yet? Just something to think about. Seek a deeper relationship with Christ. Keep your eyes on the prize. Don't settle or be complacent. And lastly, live like a citizen of heaven. Speak, act, and operate like one who is serving the very purposes of God in this world. Can you pray with me today? Let's make that our focus this morning as we close this service today. So God, we just pray, Lord. The words of Paul have challenged us today. Lord, to forget what is behind and to press on for the high calling in Christ Jesus. I pray today, Lord God, for all of us here who might have settled in our own accomplishments or what we've done, say, you know, we're doing pretty good. But Lord, I just pray that we'd have the attitude that Paul says, I've, I've, got, I've not arrived yet. There's still mountains to climb. There's still kingdom work to be done and that you still want to use me in different ways. So I pray today that you would draw us closer to you us and motivate us from complacency to be a conqueror for Christ, Lord God. And Lord, I just pray for any of those that are here today that need to know you and maybe have taken confidence in their own actions and, and their own righteousness, but Lord, help them to realize that none of that matters compared to knowing Jesus. It's not about our religion, Lord, it's about knowing you. So Lord, work in our hearts, work in our lives and draw us closer to you.
Thank you for listening. We invite you to join us Sunday mornings to worship with us. We are located at 267 College Highway in Southwick, Massachusetts. For more information about Living Hope Church, visit us online at www.livinghopechurchag.org.